welcome to Real History. This is the podcast where we discuss historical fictions and decide uh, on a fairly <laughs> arbitrary manner. <laughs> a score out of 100 as to what degree of the film is, <clears throat> shall we say, realistic up to a point? Or at least a good example maybe to the modern audience of the period of history that the film or book or game is looking at. Is it uh, based or inspired by a true story? <laughs> or is it just Utter cack. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Hugh David. I am your, I am your co-host and co-producer. With me is, oh, me, Jenna. <laughs> I'm a bit sleepy today. Oh, we're both co-host and co-producer as well, and we are here to talk to you today about the King's Speech, big hit, award winner, 2010 film. But mm-hmm. also a film that claimed to be breaking new ground historically. Yes. And I'd like to address that, or at least try and address that in today's podcast. So, Isn't Jenna, that what we try to do every week? We try, that's true. But no, this this is something different. I don't think we've ever covered yet so far in the two seasons of this show a film, a book or TV show, where or comic, where the, the authors of, the sh- of it claim to be dramatising untouched history. Mm. Because in this case, until the grandson of the speech therapist provided them with all the materials, yeah, the personal materials, which he then himself co-authored into a book. Yeah. Well done, Tim. So now it is properly part of the historical record. Um they said that most of this story was most of I, I emphasize most of this story with regard to the therapist was unknown. Yeah. This leads me, this begs certain questions for me. Like, for example, how did they know that they were going to tell this story anyway without that? Because according to the director, they only found this out partway through. Like, well, okay, which, how far into your research were you when you found out the grandson is alive and lives down the, according to the director, he lived down the road from the director in London. And he was like, oh. So that's what Tom Hooper was saying. So, um, not Tom Hooper. Uh, yes, Tom Hooper. Yes, director. Yes. So, um, uh, do so, so. So that's intriguing to me. The idea that this film is saying, "Look, we're showing you a bit of history that nobody's covered." Yes. You know, it's, there's a claim to being not quite an original source, but certainly using <laughs> primary sources that nobody's had a chance to use before. And I think that's an interesting state of affairs. I'm not. You know, normally the, we the historians get a chance to get at the sources first before the, the movie. <laughs> before guys Hollywood come gets its teeth into it. Right. And so it's really unusual to see a film and go, oh, is this how it was? Yeah. And um, they get the primary sources first while the historians what? are sitting going. Yeah. I mean, the book, was published, so, the book was published uh, in 2011, the film came out in 2010. So, you know. Um, it is very interesting, um, mm. the timing. Uh, but nevertheless, let, let's quickly summarise this for people who have not seen the film. So we are dealing with British history, English history. The king makes a speech. <laughs> it, got to give the film credit. It does what it says on the tip. <laughs> right? It's a Ron Seal movie. Um, well, so... a couple of kings make a couple of speeches. Yes, King George the Sixth, uh, who was not originally going to be the King of England, nope. but was forced to ascend to the throne because of the scandal over his brother and his brother's choice of lover. Mm-hmm. Um, the so the film begins prior to that with um, Bertie, as he's affectionately known, um, arguing. Sorry. It's also the name of my mum's dog. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Arguing with his um, then kingly brother about his responsibilities, they then and we then move very forward to the 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 point in 1936 where Bertie is crowned King George the Sixth and replaces his brother, um, and then we and and then is then confronted with the problem, which is the, that he has a massively um, yeah, he has a stammer, but a very, very severe one. Mm. And of course, this is the era of radio as the key means of communication. 
So being able to speak and inspire through speech is crucial now. Yes. Even more than it was in the past to kingly leadership. Because um, back in, like, before Radio, you could just have your speech written down and sent out. Well, now it has to be telegraphed to the nation. Kind yeah, of. exactly. Yeah. No, no, I think that's a good point. You know, we, we, we often, media analysis and history often focuses on things like the transition from um, radio to and um, film to television. Mm. You know, the, the, the Kennedy and his election campaign is often a good example of that. Um, but I think, I think we don't, I'm sure there are historians who have focused on this, but I think the transition to radio and the importance of radio is often left behind because of the generations growing up with television. Um, and I think radio is hugely, hugely important as a force in the 20th century, and we need to really recognise that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a surprisingly powerful force now. Look at what we're doing. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I think that um, we are looking at a film that actually deserves... You know, it's a film that I would not have expected to come along, but when it came along, I was more than happy to go and sit in the cinema, mm, even too. if I felt a little out of place. Um, mm. There was a number of very, very openly patriotic people in the cinema. Uh, on the day. I know, um, but it was. Were they wearing cinema. Union Jacks? I'm not going to specifically mention anything um, because far be it for me to uh, make anybody who listens to our own podcast upset or concerned. Uh, it's not for me to judge. I simply felt uncomfortable and out of place. Remind me later. My dad's got a full Union Jack suit. It's awful. <laughs> <clears throat> You know what? I got no problem with that. If he wants to wear that, that's fine. <laughs> it's it's just that if memory serves, isn't it? The he's, he's supposed to be wearing the Union flag, and the Union Jack is for at sea, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but everyone just calls it the Union Jack. No, I know, but I just feel like that's a really as a histor- as historians, that's an yeah, important. We should call it the Union flag, yes. I just think it's. I, I just think it's important. Well, you've. You, oh God, you're too young to have seen the. the, the, do you, the you may have seen it on repeats. The British sitcom, not sitcom, the British sketch show, the Two Ronnies. Yes. Okay. Did you? They. So one of the things they did was they did a fake drama series. So they parodied mm. BBC dramas, and the big popular drama when I was a kid was um, the wartime resistance show Secret Army. Mm. So they parodied it. Parodied it with a sci-fi future version in which women have taken over Britain and they have a uh, uh, so you, it's like pre-Thatcher as a, a kind of prime minister and they mm. replace the Union Jack with the Union Jill <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, the shot is you see a, a rectangular Union Jack and then you cut to the Union Jill and what's happened is they've cut it into they've kept the same basic shape but they've cut it into a pair of knickers and added frilly bits <laughs> Of course, they have. <laughs> I know it's it, it's it, it's a, it's supposed to be a revert, like a, a parody of sexism, except it is sexist itself. Um, but yeah, it's called the worm I, that I, turned. I I guess uh, they were trying. It's it's kind of funny. I yeah. mean, I I I I was a child. I I have only seen it. I think once as an adult. Anyway, enough about <laughs> flags. Back to the king. Um, so so King George the Sixth now is faced with the problem that he has to and it's a volatile time period obviously we're talking about you know mid to late 30s yes you know britain needs a strong leader at this time both in terms of king prime minister and king yes it's going through a depression which isn't helping it's on its way out but of course fascism is on the rise yes and this is briefly alluded to early on in the film mm um, and so the question becomes, what is the king going to do about his stammer? Well, the prince at the first point, and then the king. So, Agreed. Because he starts therapy before he's the king. Uh, oh, yes. Hmm? Yes, because they're aware he's going to be succeeding. No, he's. Uh, it's more the case of they're aware that he's going to need to make more public speeches just in general. That's what I mean. Sorry, that's what I was trying to. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, that's what. Because I was they don't know that he's going to succeed until his brother basically goes, "I'm out of here." True. 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 <laughs> there, was always, there was always the intention to improve his, uh, his, his Bertie's delivery. 
Yeah, which yeah. I think is about the halfway point of the film. That 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 that's a good point. Um, yeah. Spoilers! So, Spoilers! Yeah, we well, always, we have an application. <laughs> we literally do. That's like the real history. The word history means spoilers, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, given one of my favourite television archaeologists. River Song? Has that as a catchphrase. Oh, po- possibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, we are going to have to do an episode on fictional historians and archaeologists, are we not? Yes. Uh, okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, I may have a t-shirt with her on that says, hello, sweetie. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, I'm getting to an age where I really, really can't be wearing t-shirts with other women on them. Um Oh, and she's in pin-up style, too. I'll be looking later online <laughs> to see what that image looks like. In the meantime, so we have see, a film where... Best thing about being bi. Best of both yes. worlds. So we have a film where David Sadler, who wrote the screenplay, is a very uh, experienced screenwriter, been around a very long time. Um, this is a very personal film for him in the sense mm. that he himself suffered from... Uh, a stammer when young and one of the things that helped him aim to conquer it was realising that George VI went through dealing with his own stammer yeah. and so this became his quest to kind of tell that story and then when the Hooper, the director, then came in and then they, that's when Hooper claims that they found the grandson yeah. um, of the therapist. Now the therapist was an Australian Mm-hmm. And while he wasn't necessarily uh, qualified in that, he was a, a, an actor, stage actor, but he mm. developed, he, he he was good at elocution and training other actors, and he discovered that actually he found that a number of exercises that worked for the actors helped people with stammers. Yeah. And developed that into his own kind of specialism and technique, and of course a lot of what he does is actually now still used today mm. um for 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 treat for helping people with stammers work with them um the american disc that i have of the film has an actual public service announcement from the american stammer <coughs> association and there's a lot of children in particular who is stammers themselves in the advert talking so yes yeah, so he so, so um in, in a film that is absolutely jam packed with great british actors and it has mm. a couple of superb australians in it and one of them is the uh is is playing the therapist and that's jeffrey rush who i absolutely love and adore and he's been in tons of things uh he's a pirate that's where most people recognize him from (laughs) these days that's true i think before that most people would have recognized him from um the elizabeth films Mm. um he was very good in those uh and he also made a fantastic uh, if, if slightly over the top, Marquis de Sade in Quills. Um, so he's he's no stranger to historical roles. No. Uh, Guy Pierce is the other Aussie who's in it. Great actor. He plays um, the original king at the start. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's an interesting cast. So so we have this wonderful wonderful cast, and we have Colin Firth, and we have Helena Bonham Carter, and we have Jennifer Ely as well at one point, and Derek Jacobi. Um, I found uh, out that apparently Helena Bob. Botticata was filming Harry Potter during the week and yes. then coming during the weekends. Yes. So, so that Q- must have been a bit mind. <laughs> well, the Q&A on the disc I watched first jokes about the fact that um, if uh, he said the one of the things he was aware of is that if you stammer, everything takes longer. Yeah. And so he was trying not to use the stammer techniques he learnt in every scene and then the director was like no I want you to stammer on every line and he said he could see Helena's face turning sheet white because she had to get home to the kids yeah (laughs) (laughs) and he jokes about the fact that because she was very strict on her time it kind of you know they he had they kind of had to stick to certain limits they couldn't just do things and she was like Mm. I was doing quite a lot you know um uh but yeah so so this is amazing cast and um um, crikey, who is it? Uh, plays oh, Churchill. Uh, Timothy Spall. Yes, is in it as well. And who it's just we've this... seen previously as a Holocaust denier. But the episode which hasn't aired yet. But yes. Oh yes. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. It'll, people will hear it at some point. One day. <laughs> oh, we may end up redoing it. I think at this rate. Yeah, was... mostly. 
yeah. Um, but yeah, so so uh, for people who are fans of Colin Firth from Pride and Prejudice, um, there is a slight frisson in seeing him um, in a scene with Jennifer Ely again, even if they because she plays Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice. Everyone goes on about Firth and his manly shirt, <laughs> but for for some of us, it was Lizzie. Oh. <laughs> Um, For some of us, it's both. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, the point is, the film is absolutely crammed to the gills with great performers, and they're all given some very meaty stuff to do. Mm. I think one of the things I enjoyed about the film is it doesn't feel... I, I don't know if it's because Seedler as a screenwriter has has not... You know, he's not a... He's, not a, it's, he's somebody who writes a lot more than just... Um, uh, Period films. I mean, he's written yeah. a lot of period films that are quite well known. He wrote Tucker, The Man in His Dream, mm-hmm. um, which had Jeff Bridges in it. Um, and he's done some work for Disney as well, um, which should interest you, I imagine. Uh, and he did a t- he's done TV movies on people like Onassis, uh, The Richest Man in the World, and things like that. So he has an ear okay. for certain things, but it, but I, I feel like he's one of these writers for whom the story comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this doesn't feel or sound to me like a norm, like a, your typical history film. And I think that's part of why I think it was so popular at the time. I think a lot of people got into the energy of it. It's a very energetic, yeah. well-shot film, but it's also a very intimate film. And once mm. the film gets down to being about the king and the therapist, it's incredibly intimate. It's two men. In, it's literally two men in a room. Mm. With a uh, really tatty wallpaper that I actually kind of want. <laughs> Same. No, I. There was something about that wallpaper when I was in the cinema. It was just something about it. You kind of, it becomes kind of not symbolic. That's not the right word, but it becomes, you know, you just, you spend so much time in that room mm. that you kind of get used to it and kind of becomes comforting, and you sort of want it there. Don't you? Yeah. Um. Which and and there is something about the production design. It is quite clever and smart and gets a lot of ideas across and so so we see the process by which a commoner and a king become friends yeah and how that leads up to the king delivering key speeches including on either second world war yes which I think is the King's Speech that's in the title. Quite, uh, yes, it is. It's pretty... build... Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and, and I don't know about the, the UK DVD, but the, the American disc has actually got two of the King, the original King's Speeches. They've got the footage there. Oh, that's the cool. Yeah, they've got the speech itself, and then they have hmm. the one he makes when he comes back after the war. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's quite cool. It's very interesting to compare them to Firth because physically... At least in the first speech, because he looks—he definitely looks more like Firth in the second one. But in the first mm. speech, he looks more like Guy Pearce, which is mm. interesting. He's kind of leader and younger, and then yeah. the, and um, but also his 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 style of delivery is. I don't want to. I don't want to. Oh, Firth's performance is so good. I don't want to say anything that makes people think that if they haven't seen the film, that he's not doing a good job. But there's something about seeing the real King doing his speech where you realise that uh, Firth is slightly overplaying it. Yeah. Even when he delivers the speech itself, it's slightly overplayed in a rah-rah history film way, you know. Mm. Um, and you see the real speech and it's not, it, it's that slightly more serious 30, 1930s radio tone, you know. Um I found it very intriguing to do the comparison. Uh, mm. Nevertheless, nevertheless, when I, the cinema was in, people were clapping at the end and cheering, uh, and very impressed. And um, uh, I mean, like like a lot of people, like it was a packed cinema in Wickham, and people stood up. It was a big screen as well at the Empire, and people stood up, and and there was a lot of cheering. Well, not cheering, but clapping, I think. But I couldn't. I had to. I couldn't help myself. I tried not to say it out too loud, but I was like. Um, because I said this just at the end of the speech when, when in the film when everyone cheers, right? Yeah. And claps at the end. At the bar, um, I turned to, turned to my partner and I said, and now he's on a plane to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, he was. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I feel, I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm I'm busy. Ra- I'm busy rambling, Jenna. Tell, take me, take take the audience <laughs> away from my voice. Tell me something about the film that you found interesting. Tell me what you think of the film. Well, I was chatting with you over Facebook on while watching it, um, and it's interesting to see my, how my relationship to it has changed, especially okay. since I've come into university and learnt how to analyse a bit better. Um, it's like the fact of um, what I think of the British Museum. It's mm. like, I love it, but I know it's really, really problematic. Mm. Um, where this film, because it was made with the permission of the royal family, because yeah. it they weren't allowed to make it until the Queen Mother, the original Queen, not the original, original Queen Elizabeth, but Queen Mother Elizabeth, let's go with yes. that. Um, <clears throat> Helen a Carter, there we go, that's easier. Um, until she had died, hmm. they weren't allowed, because the screenwriter had asked for permission before, mm-hmm. and she had said, no, not until I'm dead, basically. And he was mm-hmm. like, okay. And as soon as she died, he was like, time to write. <laughs> so it's like... I, Well, I can see that, because by all accounts, she was an incredibly strong-willed person, and... Mm. Uh, and she 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 found a way to keep control of both herself and her life in a very in in a, in an arena where she suddenly became unintendedly which she hadn't intended to be in in the public eye. Mm. One of the reasons she she says and they give in the film is she marries Bertie partly because she knows he'll never have to give a speech and be a king. Mm. And when that Oops. changes, yeah, when that changes, she realizes that she's got to play the game differently. Yeah. And so hearing that she said that she said, no, you can't do this until I'm gone makes a lot of sense. Yes. Well, considering uh, one of the most famous things that she did was go to the Cheltenham Festival every year. Well, yes, exactly. Good thing she wasn't around this year. Oh, God. If she hadn't been dead already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't believe that still went ahead. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, going back to the film rather than horse racing, we we're gonna have to do a horse racing episode at some point. So we I are. Could... We've got one on the schedule. Yeah, so I was trying to I was trying to hint to it without being. <laughs> oh, sorry. Preview, folks. We'll be doing a horse racing episode. Sorry, you were attempting foreshadowing. Oh, yes! I'm so sorry to spoil that. <laughs> I was trying, and you. Well, considering we keep moving around the episodes, it's not much point. <laughs> this may, at this rate, this will air after the secondary. Yes, we foreshadowed the episode that just. Pl- Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and so considering anyway. we still got episodes to release from the beginning of the year, we got a couple yeah. stored away. Yeah, hidden away. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, uh, you were saying, so the Queen yes. Mother. Uh, play did it, you know, place certain limits on the film, and then when she passed away, they were able to move ahead with it. Yeah, so we get the version we get. I think she, the film's very complimentary of her. I think she's it a is. massive force in the film, and really important. I mean, Bottom Carter's fantastic. Well, Humboldt got us amazing in everything. True, because she knows when to ham it up. Yeah, but that's the problem. I think in the I think a lot of her more recent career is based on hammy roles. Yeah, I think being Bellatrix didn't help that. <laughs> no, no. But I think here she's it's a great example of what she's known for. Mm. Um I mean my one of my favourite roles of hers is very underseen in this country because it's a French film she did in the nineties where she plays mm. an English person living in Paris and she acts the entire film in French. Oh wow. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's it's basically a, a comedy of friends and drama. It's kind of it's not quite friends, you know, like a French version of Friends. It's not quite mm. that. It's better than that. But it's 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 um it's called it's called uh, Portrait Chinois, and uh, it's only ever been on DVD once because it's a Channel Four co-production. So I've got a oh, disc okay. of it somewhere. But uh, no, she's she's you know wonderful, wonderful actor, actress, mm. actor. We say actor now, don't we? Yeah, I think whatever is good. Okay, cool. So, uh, <laughs> Car- sorry, um, yeah. So, so, so there's the the aspect of the Queen Mother, which is hugely important to the film, especially uh, her sitting on his um, Bertie's stomach and going, "The King, the oh, what was it? Her Royal Highness goes up." 
her royal highness goes down. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite fun. Uh, I the, 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 I feel like this film does some of what I think people get from watching The Crown. Yeah. Now that The Crown's out, it's that thing of humanising the elements of the royal family for an audience who don't always think of them in that way. Yeah, which, again, is problematic as well. You find it problematic? Well, not pro- it's that whole... These are people that need to be humanised because they need to not be on, like, a... People need to realise they're human. Well, you were about to say they need to be not on a pedestal. Yes. You, the, the amusing thing, of course, we're talking about people who get statues made of them. Yes. <laughs> and one so of I their think... portraits appears on all of our money. So I, th- um... I think pedestal is a perfectly good word. <laughs> Banknote. <laughs> And it's that kind of thing of, oh, look, they have problems too. They're just like us, which is like, yeah, but they've still got so much more privilege. And well, I don't think the film, I don't think the film, uh, I don't think the film avoid, you know, I don't think it it, it sugarcoats that. There are points where, uh, the conversations between Bertie and Lionel Logue, uh, are. You know, there is a recognition of privilege. I mean, there is one scene that was featured heavily in the trailers and interviews ahead of the film where Lionel provokes Bertie and he says, you know, and he, and he, he gathers enough steam and anger to be able to speak clearly yeah and he and he ends the with I am your king and you must have, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you must obey me, I think he says. Yeah. Or you must I do th- what I say. I think that's the same speech where he says about the divine right of kings as well. That that Yes, by divine right. That's how, that's the thing. But yeah. the thing is that Lionel... It, it, that's another reason why having... Why it fascinates me. Because you're talking about an Australian <laughs> <laughs> challenging the king. You know, I think there's, there's the, that, that in itself makes for a certain degree of interest. But also because, yeah. you know... Um, the king, or rather in this case, yeah, so Bertie is very much insistent that his experience is all that counts. And there's Lionel saying, no, I have a greater experience than you in this area. Hmm. And this is, and you need to acknowledge my standing as somebody with experience. And I think that that's really important. I think that that's a really important uh, class distinction because we're talking about the professional class here. I mean, yes, he's yeah. an actor, but he's become something more than that. He's become an educator. He's become an elocution tra- speech. Uh, you know, he's a speech therapist in in an era where what that means and how that works. He's basically he, he's helping define what that is and how that mm. works. You know, he's breaking some new ground, and I think that um, standing his ground in front of royalty and saying no, who I am as a professional. And my exp- and what that means matters. Yeah. Not just to you, but generally. Mm. You know, Bertie's carrying the weight of his his authority on his shoulders, saying, "I have to be better than what I am." And there's Lionel going, "Well, yeah, okay, but that means you've also got to 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 step back and let me do my job." Yeah. And that 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 I think brings to the fore certain class elements. It brings to the fore some of what you're saying about the humanization versus this nature of, you know, it takes him off the pedestal quite deliberately. Yeah. I don't know if that, but I don't know if that's. Part of me goes, is this propagandary or Mm. is it not? And it might be my brain working overtime because it's people in this film asked that, pictured are still alive like our current queen elizabeth is pictured Mm. as a child Mm. and so that might make me go "Mm, okay but at the same time it's finding out that the king one of our kings had a mental health issue and also had a disability for your stammer is very reassuring maybe yes no i think you're right i think i think it modernizes him as well yeah 
it takes a period of time that is is not that far away, but feels further away because there's a whole world war between it and us. Yes. And it goes, look, here is a person facing the things we some of us face today, mm. and despite all his privilege, look at how he's treated by his own family. Yeah. And the public. Yeah. Because a lot of people who suffer from what he suffer are not in the public eye. On purpose. Yes, some of them on purpose. And I think that's possibly the value of of making... I think that's the angle... That, certainly that's the angle I think the scriptwriter was going for mm. with the film. You know, he was. I think he was trying to engage those of us who have not had a stammer with the process that he himself as a child went through. Yeah. Uh, Colin Firth says in the extras that he... That was a big part of how he learned to do it because he was very aware that you could... The whole thing could become just a caricature of people Stammering. who stammer. Yeah, and so a bit like um, Life of Brian. Yeah, and, and so instead he, uh, you know, he ref- he relied very heavily on the scriptwriter, the scriptwriter's personal experiences to, to to engage with the the what it feels like inside. Yeah, to be that person, he said one of the things he's. One of the things he thought it was quite important was was the way you are terrified to speak because you aren't sure that what you have in your brain is going to come out the way you want it to. Yeah, um, I can understand that a lot. Cause, I um, thought you would say that, yes. Yeah, because trying to get my thoughts out of my brain, which to me sounds very intelligent and like really clever, and then trying to then filter them through my mouth and somehow they end up really dumb. Um, <laughs> or... Um, like with assignments as well. I'm like, I know what I think about this, but how do I write it? Or and uh. But you see, I do think a big part of that, and this is something that the film is quite clear on, I do think a big part of that is training. Mm. You know, you when have you ever been given the time and the effort that Bertie gets with Lionel? No, never. Exactly, and 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 yes, that's a matter of privilege in terms of the Bertie. But of course, if you could have afforded Lionel, you would have been able to do the same thing. Yeah, mm. the, the, this is part of the problem with the system you've grown up with: is that there was ba- there was when you were at school, recognition of dyslexia and what to do about it was still being developed in this country. Yeah, you know, I did you actually know. go to speech therapy. Good. Yeah, there you go. I so you got some. I got some. Um, ah. I couldn't say my L's. So... Well, you certainly can now. Yes, I can say all of my L's. <laughs> Although um, you can mostly hear it when I go red, ro- nah. red lorry, yellow lorry. Well, that's, I have a to... horrib- that's a horrible thing to be saying anyway. I know, but I had to say it so much as a kid. But I ha- right. I, to be able to say that, I still have to really slow down. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and concentrate on how to say it. Um, so, yeah, I guess because of... I mean, I was in speech therapy until I was in year four, five. Okay. And it was like a once a month I got taken out of school kind of thing. So, yeah. So was... so you actually have some, some sense of what it's like to be in this film. Yeah, I just remember a lot of cheats and... Led, red, right. lorry, yellow lorry. <laughs> so, so do you think that the film gets across that process relatively accurately? Given, you know, giving, given that it's allowing, allowing for the period that it's set in. Yeah, and also the fact that he's an adult, and you teach adults differently to how you teach children. Of course. So, and I know that they didn't actually know what techniques. Uh, Lionel used with the king mm-hmm. so they <laughs> apparently they just had fun in the studio one day doing really silly things that, oh, okay. like vocal exercises that they would use as actors to try and mm-hmm. warm up their voices and stuff like that and so because that sort of information although it's not 100% lost it's not confirmed if that makes mm-hmm. sense so yep. Some of it is kind of trying to work it out. Um, That's interesting. That's interesting. There's the, the marketing of the film definitely made it sound like they 
knew what they were talking about thanks to the wonderful trove of personal records. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued to realise that, that that's not quite the case. Well, and also not surprised, really. It's, 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 when you sell the film, I think a big part of a lot of the things we, we cover in this podcast, a lot of these uh, films and TV shows and so forth, there is a uh say there is there is sales value in the word authentic mm. people want to believe that things are authentic oh even and look at um the assassin's creed series and how much which that, we will be doing yes which is um look at origins and odyssey and how much that sold on authenticity even though it can't possibly be that authentic yeah well there's it's so much this... we don't know and it's the surroundings that are more uh, sad. And Odyssey dealt with Atlantis, so <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um... And um, magical eagle-looking um, powers and stuff. Yeah, and I think that's another reason the King's Speech works is because crossover well, the... King's Speech and Assassin's Creed. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think, but no, I think, I think, I think the 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 authenticity. I think it's less important in this film because the authentic elements we're fully aware of. Mm. You know, it, it all plays in quite nicely. Uh, the speech, you know, the, the the stuff that is public knowledge is well is well woven into the film. Yeah, and I think the, th- the the bits that we didn't know, so fundamentally the relationship that is at the core of the film, they that is so well played by the two men. Yes, so well played and so well stated that it becomes very believable. Mm. I think they've really considered, uh, you know, not just the historical record and what they've found out about Lionel's perspective of it, but I mm. think they've considered very carefully how these men would interact when no one's looking at them. Yeah. When they are in private. Yes. And it's that glimpse of the private sphere yeah. that makes it such a compelling film to watch. That's hint of a family that we never get to see in their public in their yes. private roles. Yes, and so whether or not that humanises them, whether or not that takes them off the pedestal, I think is open to debate. I think that depends on your degree of interest in them as a family. Mm. But I think as a, as a simple piece of drama, like I, I'm fascinated at the idea that they made this as a film because it would have made an amazing stage play. Mm. And yet it works as a film. Yeah. There's some really I'm nice... they haven't made a stage play of it. Well, they probably will. Just give it ten years. Mm. Um, <laughs> see, see what happens these days. If the West End ever opens again. Well, yes, that's true. Uh, I think from a, uh, there's you know there's some beautiful compositions. It was certainly nice to see it in the cinema. I enjoyed it on the big screen. It, it mm. uses the widescreen quite well. Um, there were some people who there were some critics at the time who condemned it as a bit of a TV movie, but I think that's unfair. I think it, 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 it. I think it. I think it works to be a big screen film and, and in its own way and does it well, despite the fact it's about intimacy and relationships. Mm. Um, but I also think that it's slightly disingenuous to end on the, the the speech at the eve of the war as if it's a triumphant moment. Yeah. Knowing for the this is what I mean about why about me leaning to my partner and saying he's on a plane to Canada next because. Most of the people in that cinema with me don't know that. No. They think he's about to stick around for the war and and back up Churchill. Or at least, I guess that's what they think, unless they know. Mm. It's not something I knew. Yeah, so... It's not... You know, so much of the teaching of World War II is focused on... When it does deal with the home run, so much of it is focused on... um, What... Churchill's you know, Churchill is very much this kind of de facto leader mm. in when we're, when teaching this piece of history. You know, we don't worry about the royal family. It's like, oh, we got them out of the way. That's fine. Let's get on with it. Um, and I think that that makes the end of the film, at least for me, it makes it slightly. It's a personal triumph. That's all. Yeah. Not a national triumph. 
where it tries to sell it as a national triumph, even though it feels like it. And I think, and certainly the audience in the cinema took it like that. Or at least the one I was. We're supposed to be proud of our king for getting over his stammer. And... I mean, I, I, I look as a, as a, as a man and an individual. Well mm. done to him. Yeah. You know, well done to him. I mean, yeah, you know, well done to anyone who who, who learns to live with that and work with that and make and... it and, and deal with it. Then have to included. deal with an incredibly important speech on the radio. Yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 he did. Yeah. Um, That's so... one thing. There were no um, cheering outside Buckingham Palace, like you see, where mm-hmm. he's. Apparently, it was just another normal day. They went off and did what they needed to do, not mm. go stand on the way on the um, balcony and do their funny wave. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is that that bit did feel very modern. Mm. That felt very post-war. Yeah. Um and this is what I mean about the triumphal triumphalism of the of, of the of the finale. It's an attempt to give a modern audience a happy ending. Yeah. Even though there's about to be a, a world war. <laughs> yeah, when a lot of those people are going to get bombed out of their house at least. Well, well, well this is what I mean. It's it, it's a very odd way to end I mean I don't know is this are we speaking here as historians I guess we are yeah as a film critic you probably go depending on whether or not you 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 appreciate the history you know you want a satisfying film experience don't you dramatic Mm. experience and you want a a resolution and 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 there is one because the point of the film is how is is this is the relationship between the two men and the speech as well as his wife and the the speech therapy that's the Mm. key but so from that point of view, you know, it's like a sports movie. Yeah. You know, the training and the prep and the and the race or the, the, the event. You know what I mean? It's like that. Yeah. So you need to have a successful ending. Uh, it's just that the rest of uh, those of us <laughs> with some modicum of history knowledge are like, oh, dear, what a dark <laughs> and horrible place to end it. <laughs> Here comes the storm. <laughs> oh, what was it that? So there's been quite a few films that have just ended before. Oh, Prince of Egypt, that was it. (laughs) They have 40 years of walking through the desert. I know, I know. It's just like, oh, at least Exodus, the live action thing, at least they take it all the way up to what, you know, Moses not being allowed in, which is much better. That's far more interesting. Um, But But then that's made by an adult. What, six years of fighting Nazis ahead of you? There's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. It's just all sorts. It's. I think it's really interesting that we have reached a point, and this is me speaking now about film rather than mm. films about history per se. I just think it's interesting that we're at a point where the formula, the need for happy endings, which has been around in film for quite a long time, you know, because it's entertainment. People mm. are supposed to be going, oh, look, I had a good time at the movies. You know, we haven't yet got to that point, or we've been maybe we've been there and, and retreated from it, where we can say, "And now comes the dark part," you know, which we can't <laughs> afford to film. You know, because I think I think sometimes it's important, especially if you're doing a film that's set in a particular historical period, to end with some titles that go, "It didn't go so well afterwards." <laughs> the king really died of lung cancer. You know, maybe not going well. You know, not necessarily going that far. But do you know what I mean? It, 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 it... I thought it was interesting to see the speech on the disc that he gives after the war, mm. and to see that he's still got the ability. You know, he hasn't lost practice. Yeah, with the methods. And I and and I uh, I want I I wonder if they could have found a way to skip forward and end with that. Mm. I mean, I, maybe it was just too expensive for their budget to get the rights, but I would have really liked to have actually seen the film end with the speech that he comes back with. Yeah. And and let it end on that note. But maybe that would have acknowledged the fact that he left during the war. Uh, yeah, but then that's history. We have to recognise that. I know, but that's not patriotic. A true Englishman would have stayed, no matter uh... <laughs> True English. Well, apparently these days, true Englishmen make sure they have a deal in Singapore first before they <laughs> go off and do things. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll leave that for future historians to debate. Um, <laughs> so, what do we think, Jenna? What are we going to give it as a score? Mm, 
65? Yeah. There are things like the fact of, apparently, according to his grandson of Lionel, uh, he has stated that he wouldn't think that he would have ever sworn in front of the king or ever called him Bertie. Yeah. And stuff like that. And also, like, he started working with Lionel in 1926 rather than right before the... uh, uh, I was about to say abduction. Um, Mm. Abdication. Is that... Abdication. Thank you. Crisis. Um, Because it's that kind of, let's condense everything down. And also that he knew a long time before they shown the film that he wasn't a real doctor kind of thing. And because mm, mm. you think, okay, what's good? It, and also it's interesting seeing the therapy that didn't work, like put in those big glass balls in his mouth. At the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of sort of finding their way into what works and what doesn't, because it's still really a relatively untested field. And also the fact of his doctors were saying smoking cigarettes is good for you, which was well, a Well, let's thing. be honest. Well, that was a belief in going back into Victorian times. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, 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 I mean, they used to say, you know, you, it would be good for your lungs if you're an asthmatic to get on the train and go through the underground with all the black billowing smoke from the sea. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the, the interesting thing is, though, going to a trip to London for me is actually getting more fresh air. Is Cheltenham that bad? It's because we're in a bowl. Oh, So all the pollution okay. stays down in the bowl. Right. Obviously, Whereas, I've got quicker access out to the countryside. Which but... is the, Yeah, which is similar for us, although we, for some reason it doesn't seem to collect quite as badly in Wickham. London is definitely worse. I mean, I come back and blow black snot out of my nose <laughs> after being in London. Yeah, apparently it's fresh air for people that live in Cheltenham, which is just That's bit... quite what... Well, not anymore. Things are a bit different now. Ah, uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so uh, 65%, I'll go with you on that. Mm. I think that seems fair. Um, I think the film is, as always with British period dramas, there's a lot of effort made to get the setting and the and the 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 the, the sets and the costumes and all of that is on point. Mm. Um, and there's a good score and the whole film is very well shot. Um, and so forth and so on. They do I... not like center shots. <laughs> they do not like shots where a character is right in the center. They always oh, yeah, have to yeah, be yeah. off to the side. Well, that's because, <laughs> but, but that's what I mean about making sure it fits widescreen. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they're very, very careful. And then when they finally allow things in the center, it's very, very specific moments, such as the microphone. Mm. You know, it's, it's quite an interesting, the framing and the composition is very interesting like that. Yeah. But yes, I think ultimately you're right. I think, I think there's too many elements where we can't be sure. And therefore I think it has to be 65%, which is a mm. shame. But it it it's, it feels like an eighty percent movie. I still think it just... it's a film that people should see. So... Oh, I think a lot, well, it was a massive, massive success, mm. and lots and lots of people see it. I, I, I'll be interested to see how well it ages. Mm. I mean, we're talking about a film that won one hundred and six awards worldwide and was nominated for another hundred, so yeah. another two hundred. So you know, it's like wow. Okay, uh, I mean, it won four Oscars. <laughs> yeah. So you know, um, and, and and then and... the director went on to make Cats. You know what? I just think the internet's ridiculous about this stuff. I think it shows you how limited the internet mindset is because they all go nuts about something and anyone who knows the play looks at it and goes, that's the play, so what? Yeah, like, like literally, that is what the play looks like. What is your problem with it? You know, and then they're like, oh, oh my God, they were like, what's the other thing people freaked out about? And then I was just like, what is the big deal? It just looks like what it's supposed to look like. Um, you know, it's, it, this happens all the time. And, and I think we, at some point, the King's Speech is not one, but I think at some point we're going to be doing a film where this is going to be, the internet response is going to be a big part of what we discuss. Mm. I'm not quite sure yet which one that'll be. Although Possibly. Because 1492 would be another one. I think um, Pearl Harbor is kind of got some good historical accuracy, apparently. But at in the places. same... In places. 
but then at the same time, it came out just before 9-11, yeah. which then obviously made people really react to it. Well, yeah, but also... Well, we'll have to do Pearl Harbor. I'll save it for Pearl Harbor when we do mm. Um Although, so... whenever I think of Pearl Harbor, I think of Team America. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's possibly the other problem is... is... So once things have been parodied, you kind of remember the parody. Mm. Uh, so yes, yeah, so uh, right, let's come back to this. Three, Ooh. two, one. So we both agree, sixty-five percent. Although mm. it'd be nice to have a bit more. Uh, do we? Do we feel that the that there's a film? It's you. I mean, you said people should see it. It's still worth seeing. I think so. You know, it's very well seen at the time. Do we think that it's going to stand as a really good example of films about the royal family now that we've had several years of The Crown? I don't know, because one of my... I remember someone saying, I can't remember who it was, it might have been my mum, but um, when she told me about The Crown, she went, oh, I think it's a sequel to The King's Speech. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, so so if people feel like that, then that's a good sign. Mm. That I would actually take that as a recommendation for the Crown. That's a very good. I've watched recommendation. the first season. I haven't watched anything else. Mm. So, and okay. what I saw of the first season was pretty good. Yeah. Okay, something I, okay. I I watched more Victoria when that was on. Oh, uh, the one with um... Jenna Coleman. Oh, mm. <laughs> sorry. Uh, yes, you're one of the few Jennas in in film. Yes, that's why I can remember her name. <laughs> I get happy when there's a Jenna, <laughs> and wonder how much she gets called Gemma or Jennifer or Jenny or any other ways that people try to pronounce my name. Well, any of those would be nicer than the what some Doctor Who fans call her. So, um, uh... terribly controversial character for some, not for me. Uh, right on. On that note, Jenna, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at Nadesco Kitty on uh, Twitter. You can find me writing on Bunkerzilla occasionally and also on their Big Stomp episodes that um, I've appeared on, which have been fun. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm about. Come find me, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I can be found at 48 Consultancy uh, on mo- all my social media. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us about this or podcast or any of the others that I produce, you can talk to us at 48 Publishing. We also now have Twitter and Facebook pages for this actual podcast. So yeah, we do. Real History underscore UK for the Twitter. Uh, and also Facebook, actually. I think I made sure it's the same. If not, it's Real History UK without the underscore. But we mm. have pages of both. Please feel free to pop in, give us reviews, give us likes. Uh, tell us what you don't like if you want us to chat, and we'll address that. See so if we can. If you have any suggestions for what you'd like us to cover in the future, yeah. please go right ahead. And if you like anything we've done, then buy us a drink at <laughs> coffee.com forward slash 4DA publishing. Yes. Okay, this has been Real History. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we will be with you again soon. Bye.